Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Narrative 4, a global educational organization that promotes the exchange of stories as a way for participants to engage more profoundly with the world. It's about breaking down barriers between people and building empathy via storytelling, stripping away the typical narratives of cynicism and despair and allowing new ones to take shape. Narrative 4 is particularly focused on young people, bringing groups of young people together and using storytelling as a way to help them realize their common humanity. For more information, visit narrative4.com that's narrative, the number four dot com. They could use your help. They could use volunteers. And uh, hey, if you would like to support the organization, do something nice to help this cause during the holiday season, go get a copy of The Book of Men, curated by Colin McCann. It's available now from Picador. It is the December selection of the TNB Book Club. The Book of Men features the work of 80 authors, including luminaries like Ben Fountain, Jeff Dyer, Ayanna Mathis, Sloane Crosley, uh, and Edgar Carrot, all of them have been tasked with answering the question, what does it mean to be a man? That's the Book of Men, available now from Picador, curated by Colin McCann and the editors of Esquire magazine, uh, all to support Narrative 4. Narrative 4, it's a nonprofit organization that aims to build empathy through storytelling. Go and support it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two talking heads. This is one listening head. Thanks for being here. Thank you for being uh, a listening head. <laughs> uh, my name is Brad Listy. I'm sitting in Los Angeles, California, as usual. I am making sounds. Uh, do you see how this works? My guest today is Ben Brooks. He's a British author. For those of you who, like me, are prone to jealousy, bitterness, and other kinds of uh, petty emotions, you will be pleased to know that Ben is 21 years old and has already published five books. Uh, his latest is a new novel called Lolito that is available now from Canongate, and he and I are going to be talking momentarily. 
but before we begin, I should let you know that I am running late. I'm putting this program together before I take off for the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, I mentioned in the previous episode that there may or may not be uh, a Sunday episode today. And uh, here we are. There is one. I have come through for you in the clutch. Because, uh, you know, I do feel a sense of obligation. I want to deliver uh, new episodes on time. I feel like that's the unofficial contract. And I have inherited the paranoid work ethic of my impoverished immigrant ancestors. How's that for an explanation? Blame them. It's not my fault. So uh, I got a voicemail. Actually, uh, I have been getting several voicemails, mostly prank calls lately. And I haven't been playing them on the show because, uh, first of all, they're terrible. (laughs) You know, like, I don't mind getting pranked, but at least make it a good one. For Christ's sake. Or better yet, you know, be authentic or close to it. Tell me what you're actually thinking if you have something to say. Uh, You know, don't hide. Don't wear a mask. It's not necessary. Come talk to me. Say something on the program, for God's sakes. So anyway, uh, just to give you an example, this is the sort of thing that I've been getting the past couple of weeks. Hey, Brad. It's Jessica. Um, My friend Marcus wanted me to call you and let you know that whatever you want, I can give it to you. (laughs) Um, So if you want to hang out, um, I can hang out with you for up to two hours per Marcus' request. Um, so, you know, we can get, like, real wild or just take it slow. Or Like, what am I supposed to do with that? Because clearly it's bullshit. And uh, even if it's not bullshit, I, I'm a happily married man. I cannot be entertaining these kinds of queries. <laughs> I'm sorry. Jessica, I'm not that kind of podcaster. Incidentally, I think that the word podcast needs to be used as a verb more frequently, especially in conversation. Uh, I find it enjoyable. Like, for example, uh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm podcasting. I podcasted incredibly hard last night. You know what I'm saying? There's ways for that to be funny. I could give you more examples, but uh, that seems tedious. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Ben Brooks. His new novel is called Lolito. That's uh, Lolita with an O at the end instead of an A. Did you get that? The book is available now from Cannon Gate. It's great to have Ben here. I hope you guys enjoy this. Here he is, folks. This is Ben Brooks, and his new novel, once again, is called Lolito. I'm in Berlin, in, in Kreuzberg in Berlin, in Germany. Uh, in front of me is is a couple of pallets, wooden pallets stacked up, with a girl sitting on top of them on her laptop. Then next to it is a poster of the film Wanderlust, featuring Paul Rudd, which is the only reason I have it. It's a terrible film. And then the laptop is on another a table made of a piece of wood and two beer crates. Okay, so wait, you uh, you like Paul Rudd? Mm, really a lot. Okay, yeah, he's funny. I like Paul Rudd. He's too. he's very very lovely. But Wanderlust is is probably the only time anyone managed to make something bad with Paul Rudd in it. I think. <laughs> and it's that poster that you've chosen to. Is that, no, it's that poster that I found pinned up in a toilet of a bar across the road oh okay okay so it's like so, it's a found object yes but i do I, I sort of like the idea of, of having favorite actors but then uh somehow acquiring movie posters of the worst movie they were <laughs> <ever>. <laughs> yeah yeah uh and then uh earlier um just a moment ago before we we started recording uh i heard wow. you instructing or asking someone to like move a wine bottle for you like are you oh is someone, yeah someone with you in the room did you just say yeah there's a a female human okay so th- i feel th- weird talking about because she was had the headphones initially when i thought we were going to on the phone and the plan was that she would listen to music quite loudly <laughs> so, that, so that i would be less embarrassed by whatever i said so now she's sitting there listening to you talk to me yes oh interesting and this is your, this is your girlfriend or just a friend yeah the first one Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. I don't mean to put you on the spot. I thought. Like, oh. <laughs> I thought maybe since you were like get the wine and move it, I thought I had this vision of you having some sort of personal, a housemaid. Yeah, like a yeah. personal assistant or something. Oh no, that would be lovely, but no. Okay, so you're uh, you're British, mm-hmm. and yet yet you're living in Berlin. Is there like uh, some compelling reason for that, or are you just trying to see what's going this, on abroad? This this person. Ah, the person yeah. that is in the room with you. Yeah. Who who remains unnamed. Yeah, so far. <laughs> um, so, how do you like it? Can I ask you how you like Berlin? I mean, is it an adjustment? Uh, obviously, but it's a, it's nice to be out of your. Uh, I think I think it's great to live abroad and be out of your home situation, right? No, it's it's, it's very good. I mean, I was living in Barcelona before this. Uh, the main difference is you can smoke inside here, which is a big bonus, and and the beer is good, and you can drink everywhere, and. Yeah, no, it's always good. Okay, so and before this, you were in Barcelona. So, do you have? Um, has this been something you planned? Do you have kind of like a romantic view of the expatriated writer that sort of lured you out? Um, I don't know. I don't want to make it sound too precious, but is that any like? Did you read writers who were expatriated, and was that some sort of influence on your decision to um, leave England, or is it just a case of you like to travel and it sort of happened? Or I don't think so particularly i was just uh no i think it just just i get bored quite easily i don't think i read many writers from from that are from or have lived in either of the places that i've lived in 
uh, it's mainly just uh, wanting to be someone or wanting to be with someone or something. Yeah, no, I think I find that it, uh, I find that being abroad is like very comfortable. I think some people, the idea of being in a land like I don't know if you speak. Do you speak fluent German? No, absolutely not. <laughs> okay, so you're in a place where you don't speak the native language. You probably have like bits and pieces of it at best. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think there are people out there who would who would consider that uh, and would think it to be like highly uncomfortable uh, or even like hellish. And then uh-huh. there are people like me where that's like one of my favorite modes of being. <laughs> like you I get to switch off. Yeah, exactly. You can be in public. You're like there's a level of uh, even if you're immersed, you know, you're out there and you're mixing with people or you're walking the streets or whatever. There's a level of anonymity that you have, uh, mm-hmm. A, when you're that far away from home, but also when there's a, a language barrier sort of like uh, distancing you from everyone that I, I, don't uh-huh. know, I find that okay. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's nice a lot of the time, but it's weird in, in Germany and the majority of Europe, I guess, because it's kind of like one way glass mirrors, whatever, in, in the sense that pretty much all of them speak fluent English. Right. And, and you really don't speak any German, so they can understand everything you say, and you can't understand anything they say. So it's it's an odd situation to be in. Yeah, I, yeah. I always feel like I, I always feel like an asshole for being um, essentially monolingual. Like I speak some Spanish and some French, but uh, when I get into conversations with native speakers, I always joke that like I become two dimensional. Uh-huh. Like I can say the most mundane, like the things you get from the textbooks, yeah, or just like that is good. I am happy. You know? like, <laughs> so, I enjoy to dance in the right. disco. <laughs> right. How much does a train ticket cost? And so it's like you just feel you just feel uh, you know when you're sitting at a dinner table or something, and the conversation turns to you, and you try to make some sort of like valiant effort to participate, you just wind up looking like an asshole. So, uh-huh. have you lived abroad? Uh, I lived in France um, for, you know, like a good four months when I was uh, young, you know, in my 20s. Uh-huh. And uh, it was just sort of... Are you not in your 20s anymore? I'm looking at this picture of you no. on my computer screen. You look like you, you could, you're you in your 20s. No, I uh, I am 38 years old, man. I'm old. Oh, wow. Yeah. You're, like, you're ancient. Impressive. <laughs> well, I don't know. That might be an old picture that you're looking at. Um <laughs> But yeah, dude, I'm, you know, like this is something I wanted to talk to you about because you're very young. You're 20, uh, you're 21 years old. I'm not really young anymore though. Yeah, I'm that. But okay. I'm not really young anymore, is it? Uh, well, uh, in my world, 21 is very young. You know, like I, I'm technically old enough to have fathered you. That would uh, be lovely. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, you've published five books and you're 21 years old. That's uh, a rare set of circumstances, I think. So what I want to know is um, how did that happen? Like are you – you must have started trying to do this a lot younger than most of us who try to do this. Is that right? I uh, was not like too young. A lot like when you read like J.K. Rowling wrote that book about that rabbit when she was however old or, you know, whatever those people write things when they're 12 initially – it would literally start immediately when I read. I don't, you haven't had Noah Cicero. He's, he's coming up. He's coming up soon. It's coming, so it was when I was, I guess, I think I was 16 when I found a Noah Cicero book in a discount bookshop for a pound. And then I got excited about writing and started writing then. Well, so, so that was so, 16, I guess. And that was The Human War? Yeah. Okay. I like that book too. That's like a deceptively simple book. Uh, I don't know. I can see how that book might have spoken to you 
Like I tore through it and I think it's like really powerful. And I think it's also a book that sort of invites you or invites a person to realize that, I don't know, I'm going to say something stupid, but I feel like, (laughs) I feel like it's one of those books that you're like, oh my God, yeah, I can tell a story or do you know what I'm saying? Like certain books sort of invite that feeling maybe. It's yeah. Felt like books weren't something for someone for other people anymore. It was like books that something. This is ter- I'm doing terrible. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. We're both. I think we're both flailing because we're trying, <laughs> we're trying to describe why this book. I don't. I, the, th- the thing about it though is that I don't want to say something that like somehow diminishes the book or like makes it uh-huh. seem like makes it seem uh, overly simplistic or something. But like you know, I think that. Um, you know, if I recall correctly, because it's been a while since I read it, but the time frame of the book is relatively compressed. You know, it's like a night in the life. A couple of days, yeah. And then it's also like, uh, you know, it's about contemporary stuff and the Iraq war and like uh-huh. you know, the, the, like in the beginning of that invasion. And so uh-huh. I think maybe the fact that you're dealing with, um, you know, a book length work that just details what happens in that short of a span of time, you know, centered on something dramatic and, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know, it's, it's rendered really well. So that's interesting. It's, a, it's interesting, A, that that's the book that you found because um, the, that it would wind you know, that it would wind up in a bookstore over in England. Okay. Seems in like. a small town. Yeah. yeah. It was a weird book because no, I, when, when I first found that book, I tried to write a, an essay on it for school and the teacher pulled me out of the classroom and kind of shouted at me and said, I couldn't do this book. And I was like, why can't I do this book? And he was, he kind of was really horrible about how he was like, it's a piece of shit. It's like, he was swearing about how bad the book was. And I told that to Noah and Noah just said he was really embarrassed because he wrote that book so long ago. And it seemed something to him, but he, no, I think Noah said something about being embarrassed for it when I told him that well, that yeah, happened. That's interesting. You know, I feel like, I don't know, like that book captures, and I think a lot of books written, I guess it depends on, it can, it can apply to any stage of life, but maybe books written um, in kind of a fever or in like a really high energy um, situation when we're younger. I don't know. It seems, seems to capture a kind of energy, as I recall it. Uh-huh. I continue to flail trying to talk about it. <laughs> it captures a kind of energy. I can't believe I just said that. But uh, anyway, I understand the appeal of that book. And I'm. Uh, do you have any idea how the book wound up in that bookstore? Did, I mean, I guess you wouldn't know. Uh, huh? No, it was. I. It was published on Snow Books in England. There was an English edition. Oh, there so was. It's weird because because the American edition was on Fugue State, who were obviously very. It's just James Chapman running it, and they publish one or two books a year and it's very very small so it's odd that it got an english publisher yeah. uh, and i think it just didn't sell copies and they, it was billed as um you know it was somehow sold to the english publishers being a bigger rack war novel uh and it uh, I, then they quickly realized that actually it was just a very weird novel written by i, I don't know uh, I don't know. I guess it just didn't sell what they expected it to. So it wound up in that store. So then you contacted you you contacted uh, Noah after reading it. Yeah, I found his blog, which was which would have been four, five, four, five, seven years ago, uh, when he had he had the shitty blog spot, and then I found the Tao's blog spot from that. 
Okay. So that's and the, the, that's the sort of genealogy is like Noah Cicero to Tao Lin. And then you started, yeah. you started to write your own stuff at that point. And, um, like before we get there, before we get to you actually like putting pen to paper and trying to write your own stuff, like when you found the human war and it sort of woke you up to what was possible in literature for somebody of your generation or whatever, just generally, um, were you reading stuff prior to that? That was, you know, were you reading voraciously prior to that and finding like no real resonance with the stuff or were there books, you know, previous to that, that kind of, uh, influenced you as well i was reading a lot but things that i that i enjoyed like at certain points but it felt like you had to wade through things like a bunch of the pre-war russians and stuff but if and it felt like there were real moments of of oh yeah wow but you were wading through a lot to get to that and then the thing about the human war it was always the how do you say it, the drop down like a line paragraph each time and everything was very bold and clear and it was just saying something and saying something and saying something rather than i guess it was minimum i don't want to say minimalism but but no but i understand because i just had this experience uh you know like i um a previous episode like a recent episode of this show i'm i'm talking in the monologue about being at a bookstore and not being able to find a book <laughs> Uh, that speaks to me. Like I have this experience from time to time where I'll go into a bookstore and I'll be like, I just got to find a book that, that is just for whatever reason, talking to me exactly how I need to be talked to right now at this particular moment in my life. And, uh-huh. uh, I couldn't find one. And yet I guess I did find one because I sat in the bookstore and read this book called 10 billion. Um, I think it's Oh, I've got that right here. You do. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I really like that book. Well, see, this is the same sort of thing. Like, there is uh there's like 50 words to the page you know it's like it's almost like uh, uh you know it's like hu- half a paragraph of page in that big yeah but i mean but like but a very forceful argument clearly uh-huh. presented like an it, there it's an emotional experience to read it and i i i sit th- i sat there and read the whole thing in one sitting and i found myself after the fact um thinking about it and being like you know what is what is it with that kind of book <laughs> Um, you know, like books that, like you say, you don't have to wade through a lot to get to the real stuff that appeals to me so much. And like, is there some sort of connection between like how I read online? And I I feel like there's gotta be some sort of line. Like for you, I think this is probably like the water that you've been swimming in, you know, most of your conscious existence because of your age. But Mm -hmm. for for me, there was a time pre-internet, you know, like my entire childhood. And then I think when I was hell. Yeah, freshman in college, it was like email became a thing. That was you know, uh-huh. that's my situation. So, um, do you think that that's an accurate appraisal of it? Like, is it an internet related thing? And do you th- do you feel like maybe uh, you know people of younger generations are going to demand a literature that moves like that and is and operates that um, efficiently? Uh, I, I I mean I guess we have have desperately reduced. I mean, I don't know in general, but I know that my um, uh, my concentration span is is been diminishing ever since I realized I had any concentration span. Since I realized that, it's been diminishing very quickly. And I guess I I don't know if that's true for most people, but increasingly I can't sit and read for much longer than an hour. Yeah, and you have to keep opening the computer and checking things. And if, if you're trying to write a book, that's that's really terribly 
Um, it really gets in the way, I guess. Do you have that when yes, you're writing? Yes. That you have to, I guess everybody have that now, Maybe, right? I mean, to, to greater and lesser degrees, I think. But like, I'm a, like, I'll even take you one further. Like when I'm reading a book, um, I can get extremely frustrated with the waiting process to the point where it's like, I don't care how beautiful the sunset is or whatever. Like if it seems uh, extraneous to me or unnecessary, you know, like I will just put a book down. I'll be like, Fuck, <laughs> just tell me what I need to know. Like, just tell me what I need to know. Like I, I, I phrased it. I think uh, I was saying like, I want instructions, which is, mm-hmm. you know, maybe like not the most uh, perfect way to put it, but hopefully it makes my point. But like, like, don't bullshit with me. Just tell me what I need to know. Like, give me the instructions, on, uh-huh. uh, you know, on how to be alive or whatever it is. And, you know, I wonder if by, you know, by way of uh, computers and, you know, smartphones and Twitter and everything else, if, you know, the circuitry of my brain has been irreparably changed or if it's a situation where if I put this stuff down and stopped consuming the way that I've been consuming, that my attention span would uh, re-expand and that my tolerance for waiting would grow again. Do you know what I'm saying? But yeah, no, I, I know what you mean, but it seems, I don't know if it's, uh, I don't really know if it's good or bad, whether your tolerance for reading a book that opens with how many pages of describing the landscape or something. I don't know if tolerance of that is necessarily good. Maybe it's, maybe it's beneficial that, I don't, I don't know. I feel like I'm ter- doing terrible. Is this the worst one so far? No, 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 man. You're doing fine. Like, I think it's like, I think it's a very common experience. And I think that, um, you know, when it comes to, you know, trying to find some sort of middle ground in between digital and um, analog, that there, there's a lot of people sitting there astride these two things, trying to figure out what's the right way to go. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just know what I respond to. And I find myself like when I talk about trying to find like the perfect book in a bookstore, mm-hmm. um, that just means like a book that like I am like a hundred percent immersed in and like cannot put down. And like when I do have to put it down, I'm like thinking about when I can pick it up again, you know? Mm-hmm. And like I long, I, I, uh, I was going to say I long for that, but that seems a little bit melodramatic, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love when that happens. And there's nothing I love better, but I find myself having a hard time uh, finding it. And I also sometimes feel bad about myself for being like utterly bored with books that are supposed to be like timeless classics, you know? Uh huh. So anyhow, um, what about your background? I mean, like you're, you're, you know, like as we talked about pretty young, you're from England. Uh, did you grow up in like a really literary household? Oh, no, I grew up with uh just my mom no we moved we lived in latvia when i was younger Lat- latvia yeah why is that but, uh, pass uh is this working still yeah 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 oh no sorry yeah pass um uh uh and then we left there and then i just lived with my mom and my sister oh wait so you're saying my- you're, you're saying pass you don't want to answer questions about latvia yeah okay uh, so you left Latvia, you came back, it's your mom and your sister, and you're living in, uh, is it Gloucestershire? We're li- Gloucestershire, yeah. We're living with my nan. And then my mom had a bunch of husbands, and now she has a husband that she's had for quite a while. But we, my mom is, she was an accountant, then recently she looked after mentally ill pedophiles, and now I think 
And then I don't know. She did loads of things. She did. She worked in a wine warehouse. I think she did grave digging for a while. Jesus. I, I think now she works as an accountant again. I think. So were you privy to any of this? Your mom's looking after pedophiles when you're a kid. Oh no, that was that was quite recently. Okay, so you were yeah. out of, you were out of the house. That's got to be. I mean, that's one of those things, like uh, one of those human occurrences that. Uh, I can't wrap my head around, you know, it's like how that happens. Uh, how, what happens? Pedophilia, you know, like what, like what is the cause of that? I've had, I have a friend who's a uh, sex therapist. She's like a, a shrink and that's, uh-huh. her, that's her area of specialty. And I've spent like, you know, entire dinnertime conversations, like grilling her to like find out why this exists in the world. <laughs> I've never it's gotten a weird, it. So with the, in Germany here, they have a thing, which I mean, in, seems like it makes a lot of sense to me but i think in other places it would be not regard like in before films and stuff and there are big advertising campaigns for it i think this is how it works they kind of say they have a picture of a guy and they say oh if you have an attraction to children come to this hospital and we'll try and help you and then what happens do people actually take they, them they go them? to like a kind of clinic and and they try and help them yeah it's a big thing here they have a big program here i oh. think okay that seems proactive i mean assume, it seems a lot better than the kind of weird demonization that happens everywhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, did you have, I mean, with all this moving around and all the, like your mother marrying many times, like did that, uh, did you have a happy childhood? Like were you able to kind of find a comfort zone or were you sort of, um, I don't know, uh, all over the map, bummed out? Did you turn inward and start reading as a result of that, you think? (laughs) I guess so. I uh, I don't remember a lot of it. Really, to be honest. Okay, I mean, were you a depressed kid? Uh, I can't tell. I don't know. No idea. So you, I mean, no. so I guess, like, I mean, you're only 21, so there's not that much distance from when you were uh, an adolescent. But um, do you have uh, any sense of, you know, at this stage of your life, like things have changed, or do you feel essentially emotionally much the same as you did then? I guess there's some kind of, uh, uh, I guess I'm doing better now. Like the, like at school, I don't know. I'm, uh, this is getting worse, isn't it? I'm doing worse. No, dude, worse. it's okay. I'm getting <laughs> really stumbling now. No, no, no. Um, it's all right. It's all right. It's all right. I'm just, I'm just interested, you know, because, um, you know, you had like a peripatetic youth and, um, uh, you you started working on books so young, and I think that uh, something. I mean, I don't know what it is. Like maybe you do you feel like you maybe just have like a natural talent for it, or did you have maybe like such a difficult uh, youth or childhood that maybe that was where you turned and you poured a, like a, you know a lot of like energy into working on books in ways that maybe uh, kids with you know less of a burden might might not. Do you know what I'm saying? I I know what you mean. I don't know if I mean I know I didn't go to school wildly often, particularly often. Uh, I I spent a lot of time going to going into town and reading and writing instead of going to school. Okay, uh, but so after you read the Human War and you kind of had this epiphany, was uh-huh. it was it literally like right after that you start to conceive of your own book? Uh. No, I wrote, um, I mean, I wrote a lot of books that were kind of just emulating Noah's style. 
in a very kind of now extremely embarrassing way. And I was sending them to Fugue State Press and, and it was extremely embarrassing. They were just really, really, uh, if you read them now, they would probably read like a parody of Noah's style. <laughs> but uh, no, I was really trying to emulate that because it seemed so powerful to me and I didn't realize how, uh, yeah, I don't know. Was he aware, uh, was he, was he aware of, uh, was Noah aware of the fact that you were doing this? No, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, start speaking about, I think I exchanged emails with him when Fugue State Press said they, when Jim at Fugue State Press said he published my first book, I think I spoke to Noah then. And then you were like, okay. And and by uh, that by that point, did you feel like you had um, achieved some sort of uh, like stylistic individuality? Like had you left behind the parody phase or there, is there still like an echo of Noah Cicero in that first book? I don't think there is. I think it's, I think it's, that's when I really, because I think uh, Jim at Fugue State Press said, oh, I like this, but I published Noah's book because it was Noah and it was different. And I was like, oh, shit. I just realized what I've been doing. And then I wrote something yeah, different, I think. I hope. I don't know. Right. And so, like, and at this point, you're still in high school? Uh, yeah, I was 17. When when I wrote that first book, I I was... Uh, I was I'd been kicked out. I I was living with a guy, a drug dealer, in on the in the yeah in the weird part of town. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so you're living with a drug dealer. You wrote that book. Uh, uh-huh. It gets picked up by Fugue State. Are you you were you're not in school? I mean, kicked out means uh, no. I was still going to school sometimes, maybe a couple of days a week. Okay. So did you graduate? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I was. Uh, I don't know what graduate means. I don't know. I don't know if your, I don't know how your school equates to us. It was. It was like a boys, all boys grammar school. Uh, it's quite a posh one, I guess. Quite a very old one with like a school crest and a school song and a Latin motto and whatnot. We had to wear ties and blazers and. So, I mean, this sounds fancy. Like, are you? Uh, like, how did you? Uh, do you have to like pay private school tuition? Oh no, you have to. You have to get through on a bunch of tests. Oh, okay. So you tested into it. Yeah. Okay. So you were smart. You just didn't really like school that much. Uh, I guess, yeah. Okay. So um, or did you go on to university afterwards? No. But I, was, I think I was one of three people or something who didn't go because I remember being pulled into the deputy headmaster's office and being sat down and saying, why aren't you going to university? Here's a list of universities you can go to, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, okay, so let's talk about this because this uh, high school experience uh, seems interesting to me. It seems very exotic to me. Like you're in an all-boys grammar school with like a, a – what did you call it? A, a crest? A shield? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and a Latin motto. Like what – you're wearing a tie to school? Yeah, you have to wear a tie, a, sh- a shirt, and a blazer. So is this the kind of school that like uh, royals go to or is it like a notch? Like how does, how does it tear out in terms of the uh, hierarchy? Uh, eat like so you have a grammar school which is you have to pass tests to get in and you have a public school it's confusing because a public school is you call it a public school but a public school is where you pay to get in like Eton uh, which is where the royals go the royal boys at least right um, but yeah it's a, I don't know somewhere like 22nd I think when we were there it was 22nd in the country or something okay so you're there and like is it I mean 
your teachers, the classes, uh, like very strict, serious? Like, are you able to kind of fuck around <laughs> in, in a normal uh, high school way? Like, or is it very formal and rigid? It's sometimes formal and rigid, but it's kind of at the level where there's kind of quite a few of the, the kind of Oxford and Cambridge eccentrics. Uh, and they're kind of, uh, kind of eccentric academic guys who, who like, to make jokes and so on. Okay, so did you uh, did you have good friends in high school? Mm, a couple, but they were also it was a rugby school, so uh, uh, I guess yeah, quite. I don't know. Some I had a couple of friends, but you didn't uh, you didn't play rugby. I did not play rugby, but I'm from a rugby family. My uh, the other. All the other men in my family play rugby. My uncle played for England and Captain Gloucester and stuff. We're from a rugby family, and my granddad was a big rugby player. Really? And then you never got into it? I mean, I tried when I was younger and quickly became apparent that I wasn't well-suited. Yeah, it's, you know, it seems like such a brutal sport. Like We have our American football and mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of there's a lot in the news right now about like how American football is essentially just like a hellish like meat grinder that destroys people's brains. <laughs> oh no! Whenever it comes on, whenever it comes on TV, whenever that flashes up on TV, my family make jokes about it being gay football, gay rugby, <laughs> and stuff. No, but the, like the point that I want to make though is that you know there are there's all this evidence now that it really does like destroy uh people's health like you know the the constant collisions cause like you know serious brain disorders and cause people to act all all crazy and um if it makes if it does that with your with your american football it probably does it quite a bit worse with us no but here's the thing this is what's interesting is that uh like counterintuitively i think it's actually safer to play a sport uh, like a contact sport without helmets and without really these, yeah because because these helmets and these pads give these guys license to like collide and use their head as like a weapon but when you're play, oh when you're playing, like how like how boxing is 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 more dangerous than bare knuckle fighting yeah i guess no. so yeah kind of i mean it feels like if you don't have a helmet on then you're going to be more cognizant of protecting your head even if it's in a really like violent contact sport like i it just seems that way to me, but uh, uh-huh. I could be wrong. I, I mean, I was never much of a football player, so. <laughs> did you play any? Did you play a sport? I was. Uh, I played. Uh, I was the kicker on my high school football team. <laughs> uh, the kick. I don't know. So you just kick it at the beginning of the thing. Yeah, I mean, you kick like, it to the other team. Like the weakest thing you can do in football, I did. <laughs> and then you just run. And back. Just run off the field and try not to get hit. <laughs> Um, but I also played soccer, you know, for a while, but I was never, I was never fast enough, you know, like, I, I, like once we got up into high school, it became apparent that I was just too slow, you know? Uh-huh. So <laughs> sort of a hard thing to realize when you're 15. Still looking at this picture of you, you look like you're quite a fast guy. No, I, I mean, I was a good athlete. I'm coordinated and I can like, I can do a lot of stuff, but I'm not like a super fast sprinter. And it was very competitive in my, uh, school. There's a big school and like, there's only, you know. 15 slots or whatever for and there's like 2000 people in the grade or i don't know it was just really competitive so i was probably good enough to play at a lot of smaller schools but my high school it was not to be did you have that jacket like in american films a letterman jacket um is that i think i might have had one my senior year because i was the kicker (laughs) did you put on a girl 
What's that? Did you put it on a girl? No, I never see like that was that was a little bit too like happy days. I don't know if you remember the show. <laughs> I don't this is all I know about America. I'm <laughs> no, I did not put it on a girl, but like I was not the quintessential like letterman. Uh uh-huh. though I do remember, you know, like there was a certain you know, like all the people who had those things wore them to school, like wore them around, you know, like my, <laughs> I grew, I grew up in a time when, and in a place like uh, in the, I, know, I grew up in Indiana. I don't know if you know where that is in the States, but that was still sort of like uh, folksy enough to continue those traditions. I think a lot mm-hmm. of them, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of that is probably faded, um, you know, but maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? But no, I never, uh, I never put my letter jacket on a girl. <laughs> <laughs> Still time. Yeah, there is. I should. Have you still got it? I, I would have to talk to my mom. It could be uh, in the closet or the attic somewhere at, at her house, and see if uh, see if we could dig it up. If, if I you, if I find it, you, I'll send it to you. Are you married? I am. Yes. I'm ah, married. that could have been a nice thing. <laughs> that when you stood at the altar, instead of the ring, you could have draped your letterman jacket around, uh, finally putting on a girl. <laughs> would have been the the pinnacle achievement of my romantic life. um but yeah you know speaking of like romantic rituals um and it's like just i I was always very awkward i don't know if you were this way it sounds like Uh you've got an exotic foreign girlfriend you could be a lot smoother than i (laughs) am but uh i uh i remember um or just this morning i was driving past the spot where i proposed to my wife oh and i was i did such a fucking terrible job of like like most guys like they create this situation and there's like a room at a hotel and like there's flowers and there's like a band ready and a room at a hotel. I Is don't, that the normal thing? No, no I'm just, what I it mean, sounds kind of, where was yours? No, it was like, we were walking down the sidewalk by her house and I just like, I had the ring in my pocket. I had made the decision to do it. And it was like, I had like a, a, a ticking bomb in my pocket. <laughs> like once I made the decision psychologically to go there, like, I had to do it and like unload it. So here's the story. It gets better or worse, depending on your perspective. <laughs> so we're so. walking to dinner and my idea was like, I'll just do it. You know, as we're walking, I will just ask her. <laughs> it was very <laughs> ill-conceived. And so <laughs> as we're walking, she, uh, she asks me about a friend of mine who had been in town and we had gone for a hike, uh, in Hollywood up in the hills. And, uh, my friend was married and his wife was actually down in South America um, taking like some sort of intensive language immersion class for a month because mm-hmm. she wanted to learn Spanish. And so, uh, I'm walking with my wife. I've got this ring in my pocket. I'm like all sorts of nervous and ready and just like, you know, a bundle of nerves. Uh-huh. And she's, you know, casually, she has no idea this is coming. And she casually asks me, uh, you know, like how the hike went with my buddy. And I was like, Oh, he's, you know, he's doing great. And she's like, yeah, he must be having fun for the month. Like without his old ball and chain with him, you know, kind of joking. <laughs> and be- because ball and chain had like a, uh, what is it? A- like a conjugal, uh, you know, it, it had something to do with marriage. <laughs> it like set off a tripwire in my brain. And like, I just immediately, I had my hand in my pocket on the ring. And like, after she said that, I just, yeah. I yanked it out of my pocket and I said, speaking of ball and chain, will you marry me? <laughs> I shit you not. It's a hugely embarrassing Really thing. nice. Yeah. And we were standing uh, like by an alley, you know, in the dark. It was, she didn't think it was real. And apparently I was holding the ring up by my ear like a football. <laughs> like I didn't even, I didn't even properly get on one knee. I was just like, I pulled it out and held it up by my ear. And she was like, what the fuck is this? You know? And, 
those are, those are moments. I tell you this because those are moments that you cannot get back, Ben. So. <laughs> please, please learn from the error of my ways. <laughs> I'm gonna. That sounds. It will work, I guess. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's all about execution in the end. She did say yes, so. And uh, then we went out to dinner, and we had some champagne, and we got very drunk, and it was very... It's good that you went out for dinner. It would have been a lot worse if you just gone home and watched Game of Thrones or something. Exactly. Just go home and, like, just, like, surf around Netflix. <laughs> um, but no, you know, it's funny. I've just never been good at, like, those kinds of... This is why I don't like holidays, because it's, like, these these days and these moments that feel like kind of... Uh, there's all this, like preloaded emotional content and expectation of how things are supposed to go. And I completely, uh, I think I revolt internally a little bit against that. And then I also just flail generally speaking when I'm asked to sort of participate or manage all that. I don't know if that makes uh -huh. sense. Do you know what I'm saying? No, it makes sense. Like a, like a proposal is supposed to be a certain kind of romantic and a holiday is supposed to be a certain kind of fun. And yeah. And it's like, well, wait a minute, this is just a day. And I don't know. I, not that, not that, uh, I guess, you know, a proposal is a big moment, but I, uh, I just think that all the pomp just gets a little bit ridiculous. I don't know. And uh -huh. I don't know if it's the same way in England, but in America, it's like, I've never proposed in England. So I don't, you don't know. I don't know. You're, you'll, you know, over the next 10 years, you'll, you'll have, you'll see it happen. I saw what I saw one of my mom's husbands propose over a bridge over the swimming pool on an all-inclusive holiday in Crete. <laughs> uh, when they both, because when we're going on all-inclusive holidays, obviously we go on all-inclusive holidays so they can both drink all day. Right. So it was, I think, I guess it was about two o'clock in the afternoon. They're both extremely drunk and there was just a little tiny bridge over the pool. And I just kind of looked up and he was kneeling down and I was like, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> New dad. New dad in there. <laughs> Just hammered at two in the afternoon. Um, okay, so like the rest of your publication history, like you know f the four books from uh, your debut with Fugue State, mm -hmm. you've been pretty prolific. Like you must work pretty fast and you must work pretty hard if you're getting this many books done. I get, I used to. I guess I used to. I mean, when it was when it was the books with Fugue State and ML Press. It was kind of uh, a lot easier because I knew that nobody would read them and nobody was depending on them or or I wasn't depending on them either. Like it was just um, – It was fun. It was fun and it was, it was a good thing. And now it's, it's, it's the, where the money comes from. Right. <laughs> and there's the agent and the editor and whatnot. Okay, but you've gone on to like, you know, the, your late – or uh, Canongate published you. Like when did you get to Canongate? Uh, when I finished school, uh, when I finished school, so I think I wrote a half grow up when I was 16 or 17 and then 17, half when I was 17 and then finished when I was 18. Uh, and yeah, they, I think they bought it when I was 18 and published it when I was 19. Wait a minute. They bought, they, Cannon Gate published Grow Up. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Grow Up. Okay. And so what was that experience like? I mean, going from uh, a super small press or wait, I'm sorry. I'm, forgive me if I'm getting this wrong. Did Fugue State published Grow Up in the States and then Canning. No, no, no. Penguin published Grow Up in the States. Okay, they did. And so what was the book that you did with, with uh, Fugue State? I did Fences and the Casa Horror School of Nihilism with Fugue State. Okay. And then uh, with ML Press, who are now defunct, who sadly passed away earlier this year. 
uh, yeah, I did Island of Fifty with with ML Press. Okay, so the can I mean, Canon Gate's one of the best publishers in England. Um, I've certainly I've heard of it. Uh, repeatedly. They published your, they published your president. They did. Well, there you go. But I mean, like whenever you see like a big book deal, like Canongate's often the player in like the the UK sale or whatever. Yeah. But what was the difference? And you know, what was the difference between the experiences going from like indie presses to going there? Um, and then you know, as far as like the writer's place in England and your ability to make a living as a writer, like is it as hard over there as it is here? I I've been extremely lucky. I think. I mean, I've not had to do really anything. Uh, I mean, I've written these two books and I, it's different because uh, with the other publishers kind of people on the internet on abstract things that it would just be a couple emails and now it's dinners and lunches and parties and whatnot um uh so you got big enough advances and have done well enough in terms of book sales to support yourself solely on your fiction oh yeah i haven't had a job yeah, I've been extremely lucky. I I don't know why, but I somehow yeah. Okay, so forgive me for not knowing, but like how how have, how have your books sold in England? Are you like a best-selling author over there? No, but the translation, the foreign rights and stuff, uh, have been. I've been. I think they gave me too much. Really, I think someone's going to get angry at me at some point. But I'm. <laughs> I've been fine. Yeah. Well, but you know what? I think there's, I think there's a lot to be said and there's a lot of, um, well, I think there's just a lot to be said for the fact that you're able to do this at such a young age. That's rare. And I think <laughs> that what, from a publisher's perspective, and I'm, I'm just sort of guessing here, but they look at that and they go, my God, because you know, they read a lot of stuff. And if you're writing publishable material that they feel like has an audience, um, at such a young age, they probably feel like there's upside and there's, you know, some, I, I don't know. I think people get excited about that maybe more so than they do about like some 45 year old, uh, you know, who writes like a really great debut novel. I think they maybe feel like there's a longer publishing arc or something to participate in. I think they definitely do. And I feel a bit worried about it now because kind of then at that point, it was kind of okay to be good for your age. And now I have to, now that's not really an excuse anymore. It has to be just good. Right. And, uh, and, it has to, and, it has, and it has to make money, right? I mean, do you feel like yes. a, do you have to, do you feel like a, a, a you know like a financial obligation to your publishers and like oh my god, what are sales doing? Are you all like worried about that at this point? I mean, I feel fine. I need to. I feel financial. I mean, I need money. That's that's it. Like I don't, <laughs> right. as long as I have like I don't really mind about everyone else. I think they're gonna be fine. I think my agent and my editor probably have enough. Uh, to get by without me, but I mean, I don't know. Okay, so uh, what about the agent and the editorial process? Like, did one you know, one preceded the other? You got the agent on the strength of um, your earliest work, and then from there have built. Is that what happened? Uh, no, I think I had a friend who worked. You know, it's not a wildly interesting story, but I had a friend who worked at the Guardian. Uh, when I was living in London, I, when I was not living in a house in London, uh, I just moved to London, didn't have anywhere to live, and I was just sleeping around. And I had a friend in London who worked at The Guardian, and she did an article about weird fiction or something and did something about the old books. And then I had half of that weird oh, – this is terrible. Uh, and I got an agent. I don't know. You got an agent. And then the, from there, you got the book deal with Canongate. 
Yeah, but it was weird because my agent, uh, when he initially called me, he said the the owner of my agency said to not take you on. He said he looked at your book and said it was shitty, <laughs> and I'm just going to meet you now because I think maybe it might not be shitty. We'll just have lunch now, and I'm going to send it to this one person who might like it. Uh, and he sent to Kanagate, and Kanagate did like it. And then his boss was like, okay, fine, I guess you can take him on. <laughs> now, that, now that we know we're going to get paid. Yeah. I mean, but you know. It's that's... really awkward when I see his boss now, when I'm at the agency, and we kind of shuffle. And he's like, oh, hi, how are you? And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just, just just that shitty writer whose book sold. <laughs> but you know, it's like, it's a good lesson, I think. Um, you know, a lot of people listening are writers or. Um, you know, are interested in it at least. And it really only takes one. And I guess it sounds like in your case, the first one bit, which is a fortunate set of circumstances. Um, Those are really lucky people. Yeah. We've been thrown in with the lucky people. Okay. So um, when that happened, you know, like Canongate uh, decides to publish your book, I'm sure there was a little bit of news about it in the book world and the book media over in England. Did you, uh-huh. could, did you sense a change like in terms of how you were perceived or how your work was perceived or did you start to get more attention or? I was living with my nan, so I did was not really exposed. I had I had this two friends probably. I was living with my nan in Gloucester, so I uh, nothing really changed. So there, I see. I was thinking like you were in London at these fancy parties, like doing cocaine. Oh no, not then. You're like living with your is your nan your grandma? Yeah. Okay. Uh, when I got paid, I did I did move to London. <laughs> uh, yes, and then that stuff happened. Okay, so you go to London with all this money in your back pocket, and uh, you get an apartment. Yeah, and you just and you're still you're working on the next thing at this point, like trying to. I wasn't doing anything at that point. I was so <laughs> I think <laughs> it seemed so dumb that somebody had given me money for that book that I just uh, spent it on really dumb things very quickly. Like what? Like give me something. Mean, I know obviously alcohol and drugs, but I mean, did you did you buy like a fur coat or something? Like what happened? Uh, hello did that work what is it wait what did you try to do you trying to you trying to send me something yeah oh yeah you're you're texting me (laughs) what are you sending me a picture or something no, oh. this is this is gonna go terrible on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you went and you spent money. You can say anything. You can you can say it if yeah. I if I. Okay, do it, so, you can say it. so wait, you you spent it on hookers. Yeah. Okay. And... <laughs> this is awesome. Okay, yeah, because there's uh, <laughs> prostitutes and co- okay, yeah, okay, prostitutes yeah. and cocaine. I got it. Okay. So that was a, a you know a kind of a period of wild excess. Yeah, <laughs> I've never had a simultaneous <laughs> text experience in this show. This is a this is a first. Um, so were you happy during this period, or did it feel like were you just like this is so stupid? Somebody gave me this big pile of money for this book, and uh, do you know what I'm saying? Like, what was your emo- emotional state? Was it like a celebration, or was it bad. Like, wh- no bad? I think I think. Uh... I think bad. I think that's when I started drinking properly and probably bad. Yeah, probably bad. Okay. I was there for about a year and I would just stay in my room every day. I will go out briefly to the aforementioned places. Okay. 
local uh, brothel. Uh, okay, so then what happens after that year? Where do you go? Is that when you take off? Uh, that's Spain? when I moved to Barcelona, I think. Yeah, I moved to Barcelona. I moved to Barcelona for half a year. Okay. And then I think I came back to Gloucester and I moved back to Barcelona again. Why Barcelona? Uh, I'm good friends with my the, my Spanish publisher. Um uh so i would hang out in the office there a lot and sleep at his house or sleep in my apartment who and who is and, that, who is your spanish publisher they're called blackie books uh i don't know if they, they published teddy wayne oh, okay who you do um and danis biota i don't know if that's how you say it probably danis biota hey, i don't know stone stone oh, arabia oh, oh danis biota yeah there we go terrible pronunciation so uh and they and i'm really good friends with them like they're probably the only people I speak to every day apart from in real life. Uh, and I went to Frankfurt book fair recently as a representative of them to try and buy some books. And I did a very terrible job. But, wait, um, wait, they wait. sent you to Frankfurt as like a, an, uh, a publishing executive essentially. Yeah. And they said, go buy some books, books. and manuscript. Yeah. And so you show up in Frankfurt and what do you do? Like, I've just, I've never been to the Frankfurt I book fair, but I'm picturing it. Don't as like, go. Don't ever go. It's, yeah. I trade, trade shows. What the fuck? Who wants to be in a convention center wandering That's, around? I, thought, I somehow thought it would be exciting. I somehow thought it would be like lots of people excited about books or something. And it was not that. Right. It's just people cutting deals and weird cocktail parties and yeah. lunches and stuff. Right. Yeah, the only guy I enjoyed, I had, I somehow had uh, dinner with a kind of a sixty-eight-year-old guy who run a crime thriller publisher from New York, and we drank champagne for a while, and that was the best bit, probably. Can I get to have a lot of parties at the at Frankfurt Book Fair though? And Jamie always DJs, and I don't know. It's kind of, it's not very nice, really, as a writer interacting with the publishing world. It's not very fun. It's kind of gross. Did you go to the Cannon Gate parties? Oh yeah, I, yeah. Okay. So, uh, what did you see? Like, who's like you know who's over there, you know, mingling around? Do you see any big authors? Uh, no, I think most authors, authors older than me, have realized that it's not fun to go to book <laughs> fairs. <laughs> like, uh, there was no. I think I met absolutely zero authors. Really, no one. Uh, do you do you know Jamie Bing, who owns and runs Canegate? He's the good. He's the good part of everything, and he he DJs and hosts the parties and stuff. But no, I didn't see any authors. That was it. Okay, interesting. So, did they, were they? Did I mean you? Did you walk back or, or return to Barcelona empty-handed? Did you say I, I have nothing for you? <laughs> oh no, I was living. In, the part of the reason I went was because it was a little bit close. Oh right. I, I've got business cards. I've got a bunch of. They're all spread out over the floor right now. I've got business cards with my name and the publisher on it. Uh, but no, I went from Frankfurt because it was in Frankfurt to Berlin. And no, I did come empty-handed. I didn't do anything really useful. Okay. I really hope he doesn't listen to this. <laughs> I'm kind of because I I sent him a sh- yeah. Okay, I'm not gonna say anything. Yeah. Okay. I so, found, oh. so okay, so you're in Barcelona. Uh, you're hanging out at, with uh, you know your editor friends at Blackie Books. It's Blackie Books, is that right? Yeah. No one was. No one else was there. Okay, and Blackie. then it was I was yeah. What was your day to day in Barcelona like? Were you working or were you? Just... Uh, Barcelona was. Uh... Do you need to text me? <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> Can I read these? 
Yeah. <laughs> okay. I just said co- cocaine, hospital, cocaine, cocaine. So you were hospitalized? Yeah. Oh, Jesus, a few dude. Times. Yeah. Are you are you clean and sober now? Are you still doing this stuff? I drink. Okay. No. But you've, you're done with the coke? Mm, yeah. Okay. See, because this is the thing. First of all, um, I never, you know, got into cocaine, but like whenever I was around it, it was always people in bathrooms and it always sketched me out. Cause it's like, if you can't do it out in the open, why are you doing it? Like when people have to go in groups to a toilet, you know, like I always appreciated it when someone would just do it in front of everyone, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> which I might, you know, I could be wrong, but I suspect that's probably how you were, but uh, you know, maybe. Oh no, I, no, I wouldn't go out. I didn't go out. It was always, I had a guy who would just come to my apartment okay. and I would just sit in my room. Did you write under the influence of this? No. No, this was not a working experience. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But anyway, no, I just, I find that it, it winds up making people, um, I don't know. I guess it's kind of fun to be the drunk guy in the room with the people who are on amphetamines for like the first two hours. But then, you know, it starts to get weird once you get closer to sunrise. You know what I'm saying? I think that's what's better. That's what, yeah. I mean, I partly like being alone in my room because I don't like hanging out with people and partly because I'm very aware of how annoying I am, especially yeah. after taking those things. Yeah. But I, I, do, I will say though, some of my, like back in my, you know, more hedonistic days of my youth, like it, it was, I was always like the one, I was the guy who was drinking, you know, when everyone else was doing that stuff and like being the drunk guy with those people is actually really fun. <laughs> Cause like people are giving you massage. I'm thinking of like ecstasy too, but like <laughs> people gave you massages. Well, I don't know. They're just like telling you how much they like you and they're, they're <laughs> sharing. <laughs> There's a lot of really earnest, like emotional talk, you know, and I'm just like having a beer. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I am a great guy. I guess I Thank am. You. Yeah. Thank you for, you know, thanks for the, <laughs> like the full discreet, you know, the full download on your, you know, your romantic relationship or your childhood or whatever it was, you know, but, um, <laughs> I don't know. I kind of sort of like that, but then I, I remember it kind of like burning itself out. Uh, so I'm glad to hear that you're only drinking. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and then, you know, and then the, this hospitalization uh, situation, like how s- serious was it? Was it just like, like a re- That's always happen. It always happens. Uh, sometimes it's not bad. I'm not like dead. Okay. I don't know. But it was like, really- dumb to talk. I don't know. It seemed okay. embarrassing. Okay. Okay. But I mean, was it, was it like a overdose situation or was it like a rehab situation? No, the first one, the first one. And then the second one would be like a course of something to help. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're okay, dude. That makes thanks. Me, that makes me happy. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, I think you're talking to Jordan about. Yeah. Jordan Castro. Something. It's the same thing. Like, you know, I just, I, you know, and I think maybe this is a function of age and I don't want to sound like the old guy who thinks he knows everything because I don't. But like, you know, you live long enough and especially if you uh, experiment or you are around people who use drugs, like it's, you know, eventually it gets some people and I hate to see that happen. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, it's hard to, it's not something that can be, I don't know, it's hard to emerge from a big group of people or if you have like a big representative sample of people who are doing that stuff, um, then especially to excess, it will wind up causing damage uh-huh. or worse. So I just don't want to see that happen. And I'm glad that, you know, as far as I know, Jordan, you know, after when I talked to him, he was on the wagon. I think he's since fallen off a little bit, but hopefully he's back on. You know, that's, that's uh-huh. what I know is I know, you know, what I know from the internet and 
it's weird how I can like worry. I don't know if you ever have this happen to you, but it's weird how I can worry about people that like I only know from like Twitter. Very, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It seems really, like you can just read someone's book and yeah. become extremely worried when you just hear something about them being yeah. not okay. Or you'll get like just a tweet. I'll be like, oh shit, how's he doing? <laughs> That's okay, yeah. <laughs> so, but you can't really email them asking them because it's kind of dumb to email them asking them, oh, I really hope you're okay. You feel kind of dumb doing that. You can't well, really do that. Then you want to know, okay, so I'll come clean. Uh, after I read, uh, you know, I, I did send an email to Jordan, having only talked to him on the show, wishing him well and telling him I hope I hoped he was okay. And I didn't hear mm-hmm. back. So I, I kind of felt like a shithead after that. I was like, <laughs> was, you know, was I out of line? I don't even know the guy. But I was just like trying to be encouraging or help, you know, nice or something. But, mm-hmm. You know, maybe I should have helped. I met him. You did meet him? I you you haven't met him? No, I have never. I have never. No, I met him. I met him once in Chicago. Okay, really, really nice. Yeah, he seems like a sweetheart. Um, and you were in the United States on like what a book tour, or was it just like a? Uh, no, it was just a visit with with Crispin. You know, Crispin Best, maybe. Well, I, I internet know Crispin Best. Yeah, he just he just left yesterday. He came to visit me. He just left yesterday. He came for a few days to visit yesterday. Okay, wait, but it was he? Where does he live? He lives in London. Oh, he lives in London. Okay, yeah. So I, yeah, Crispin's on like you know Twitter feeds and Facebook and stuff. But uh-huh. um, you came to the states with him with just, him just for to, AWP. To, oh, uh, he, about a couple of years ago, or a year ago, or something. I was there. I was in Chicago. Were you? Yeah, for like you know, I went for like thirty six hours, having never gone before. We didn't inadvertently meet anywhere. I don't think so. I don't no? know. I'm, I'm, we may have, we may well have like passed each other or something. Um, but I was just wandering around clueless, like trying to let people know about this podcast. I mean, it was, I felt like, I just felt like a jackass. I didn't know what I was doing. There. <laughs> and it was sort of similar to the Frankfurt book fair experience. Where I just, think it really was where everybody else had to like meetings and appointments and shit to do and people to meet. And you were just kind of, lost i just in the sea of people yeah it's like i mean if i had like a really like explicit reason to be there like i'm on some important panel but even that doesn't sound that appealing to me to be honest with you like you know or if i i don't know i just like i would need like a bigger reason to go and it's not that i don't like to socialize and that i don't like a lot of the people that are there but it just feels like like overwhelming i I just i don't know i I would prefer maybe a smaller environment Mm -hmm. (laughs) um less like chaotic and and you know i don't know but uh how did you like chicago did you have a good time at least when you were there no i had i had a nice time i had a really nice time it was nice meeting people i mean i don't really talk to anyone on the internet anymore but then it was it was nice meeting everyone everyone was really nice and that's when we watched the wanderlust in the cinema oh yeah that was your we got we got thrown out of the cinema though <laughs> you did <laughs> We didn't get to watch all of Wanderlust. Why were you like talking to the screen, or what was happening? I, I don't. Re- I remember. I don't know. I think just jumping around over the seats and stuff. Do you need to text? You need to text me again? Or I don't know. I, that one's okay. I think it's. Okay, I think it's okay to run around during Wanderlust. I don't think I'm going to be left because of that. Mm. Hopefully. So you said you don't talk to people on the internet much anymore. Mm. No. You gave I, it up. Not gave it up. Just I feel. Uh, a lot more anxious about seeming dumb. Like I didn't, you sent me an email about this initially and I didn't reply to it because I knew that I just didn't want to be boring and didn't want to waste your time and didn't want this to be shitty. 
because the podcasts are so good and everyone's so good and I don't want it to be shitty. Well, I, and, I appreciate that. I'm now worried that like I don't have enough anxiousness. <laughs> I'm just no, no. I feel really nice and it's really good. I, but and then Mira emailed and I think I was a bit drunk and I said yeah because I really do like the podcasts a lot. Well, I appreciate it. I'm glad you said yes because you, you've you've been great. You're like this is uh like this is what I always tell people, and I think that it really holds true. Is that as long as uh, we both make a good faith effort to try to have a conversation, it's all that matters. Like I think, I mean, at least that's all that matters to me. And I suspect for listeners that uh, as long as the thing feels honest and there's some like you know some good faith effort to put some energy into it made, then it'll huh. be fine. You know, and like we don't have to be rocket scientists because if that were the uh, criteria, then. Uh, nobody would be listening. <laughs> That's clearly not my forte, but um, I don't know. I mean, I guess like just tracing the line, uh, Barcelona to Berlin, and that happened as a result of you meet this girl and then decide to move. Oh, no, I met this person when I was 14. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay, and then she was a German native, and you guys reconnected somehow while you were in Barcelona? I'm just curious as to how you got... Across the continent. Oh, she's Russian. <laughs> okay. And your okay, and your first book was about her. Okay, this is all coming through now. So, uh, anyway, you got to you got to, you got to Berlin. Text messages are coming through. <laughs> Sorry, this doesn't work well as a podcast. No, it? It, it actually kind of does. I sort of like it. So, um, how did you get from? Can you tell? Can you tell me how you got from Barcelona to Berlin? Are those two? Um, living arrangements sequential, or was there anything in the? In I moved back to London for maybe a month or two. Yeah, and that was when I did the little tour with Tao. Right. Uh, yeah, and I moved back to London for that, and then I came back here. How was the tour with Tao? I got like some Twitter updates on that, but I didn't get. The it was it was really fun. I was so worried, so anxious about meeting him because. Obviously, liking him and blah 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 blah. Yeah, but he was so nice, and it was it was fun. That's great, man. And so now you're in uh, Berlin, and uh, what is your neighborhood again? I recognize Kreuzberg. Yeah, I think there's a block party song called Kreuzberg. That's maybe, about it. Maybe that's why I know about it, or I've seen a picture yeah. of it. But um, do you know how long you plan to be there, or is it up in the air? I have no plans. I mean, I have to go to Barcelona. In February to do the launch of the Spanish launch, and that's um, might stay there for a week or two. But apart from that, probably staying here. Okay. Well, it's been really fun talking to you. I hope at some point we get a chance to meet, and uh, I wish you well with the, the writing, and uh, I also uh, wish you uh, good health. <laughs> Thank. Uh, you. Take good care of yourself, and you know, you know. What Thank I mean. you very much. It was fun. I was worried, and it was nice. It was nice. All right, man. It was good talking to you. Bye-bye. All right, folks. There you have it. That is Ben Brooks. Go get his new novel. It's called Lolito. It is available now from Canning Gate. You can find him online at www.aninaffableplayforvoices.blogspot.com. Uh, by the way, Blogspot, uh, autocorrected is Bloodsport <laughs> uh, on my little screen here. You can also find Ben on Twitter where his handle is at Ben underscore Brooks. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And, hey, don't forget about the app. Don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. It's the official app of this program. It's the best and most elegant. 
uh, and most popular way to listen to the show. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline, and you can access premium content and the full archives as well, all via the app. So please go get that. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. And once again, the app itself is free. Okay, so it was that was fun. It was fun talking with Ben. And uh, I did like the uh, texting element where he was uh, texting me as we were uh, talking. He was giving me information in a kind of subtextual manner, if you will. Did that uh, uh, add an element of intrigue for you as a listener? Did you find that dramatically rewarding? Hey, if you uh, want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Let me know what you're thinking. And if you want to leave me a voicemail message, uh, you can do that over at the show's official website, otherpeoplepod.com. Just click on Send Voicemail at the right side of the page. Please remember that Julius Caesar suffered from premature baldness and that uh, Anton Chekhov wrote as many as 800 short stories. That's it for now. Uh, I'm done. Thanks once again to Ben Brooks. I hope you guys had a nice holiday, uh, a nice Thanksgiving. Or if you're in England, uh, I hope you had a nice day. Or (coughs) Or holiday. Don't you have a bank holiday coming up over there in England? What the fuck is a bank holiday? I have no idea. Let's all go to Wikipedia together right now and uh, broaden our cultural understanding. Uh, You know what? I don't think this program has a Wikipedia page. Am I supposed to create that? What's the rule? What's the protocol? Does somebody else do it? Uh, Isn't it bad form if I do that? Isn't it kind of uh, masturbatory to make your own Wikipedia page? I'm not doing it. I feel weird about it. Someone's got to do it for me. Uh, Are there any takers? Is anyone out there that bored? Please don't do it. Just don't. (laughs) Just go outside. Do something else. If I find that I have a Wikipedia page, anytime in the near future, I'm going to be depressed the other people Wikipedia page. I'm just rambling at this point. I gotta go. I'm leaving. It's over. We need to let go. Imagine the two of us on a beach and uh, we're parting and like we're holding hands but then our hands release. Is that a dramatic image? I'm flailing. I have no idea how to end this one. I'm just gonna let it go. I'm just gonna keep talking. Do you realize how hard I'm podcasting right now? <laughs>